Now, as you turn to John chapter 15, let me remind you, for those of you who read the emails I send out, the title I gave to this message is Why Christianity is Fruitless. And it is for some. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, Right? That means to prune it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me... He can do nothing. Now, in Titus chapter 1, just one verse, verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote this. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. So in other words, with their mouth they say, well, I know God. But he says, but your works deny that. And being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work, reprobate. Now, the word reprobate, adocumus, means to fail the test. It's primarily used of metals such as we would have with gold. And I think I mentioned this just recently as an illustration. I think we've all seen in the movies primarily somebody's handed a gold piece and using a Western movie and they'll bite it. And what's the idea? The idea is that gold is a soft metal. So if you bite into it, it's pure, if it's pure gold, right? It's going to leave a little mark in it. And so you have another movie there too where somebody else is handed what looks like a gold coin and he, ah, and he bites into it. He can't bite into it because it's fake. But for the untrained eye, like for me, I couldn't tell if you put on a counter the difference between zirconian and real diamond, especially if the imitation is done really well and polished, or put it in a setting of a ring. I couldn't tell the difference, but the jeweler probably could recognize it right away. And then upon examination, it would say that this is a fake. You paid $1,100 for this zirconian. It's not worth whatever zirconian is worth. Fake. And the title of the message is really the theme. If your relationship with Christ is fruitless, the end isn't good. See, we were planted, as we read in Isaiah, the prophecy which has now come to pass, coming to pass, is that we would be the planting of the Lord, trees of righteousness. So we look at Jesus. Of course, he's the master of all things, but he's just the master of illustrations putting a precept, a principle across in such a way that we can appreciate it. Look at the words there, if you're still in John chapter 15. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes it away. And then every branch that's bearing fruit, he prunes it. So there's going to be a cutting in your life, my life, either way. You say, well, I've been doing so well in the Lord. Why am I running into all these obstacles? Well, there's your answer. God is cutting you back. It's not just the flesh either. It's ideologies planted in the mind that have taken root over many years. Or maybe the one you picked up just last week. And the worst of all is when you pick it up from the pulpit or from Google. Um, The worst of all is when you're picking up something from someone who is supposed to be representing Christ. That's why I've exhorted every person I've taught over the many, many years now read your Bible. There it is. Well, it's God's Bible, but you get the idea. Read it for yourself. It's a way for you to always check on me. 
write the verses down, look them up. Some of you do extra study at home, and believe it or not, you've got the same, well, most of the same resources that I use. A few exceptions there, but you can look up the same things I look up. Study it the same way I study it. Jesus says here in John 15, verse 2, Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes it away. That's what it says. You know, this is, by the way, this is one of the easy things about preaching. Not everything is easy about preaching. And not everything is easy, certainly, in the pastorate. But it's very simple. If you're not bearing fruit, there's a, coming a point in time or there is a point in time with maybe people I've known or taught, but God has taken them away. It doesn't mean they're not on the earth. And it doesn't mean they're not in some church meeting somewhere, singing songs and praying as we went through this so many times. But in the mind of God, maybe more so even than the person, they're already out. I read to you in Titus the word reprobate, and I showed you the example of gold. And that's what that word means, adakimus. doesn't pass the test. It means you're not genuine. So let's use the word Christianese. And we can speak and say the right things in the group that we're in. This would be here for us. Time for truth. It could be across the street over there or across the street. And you could speak the language of your particular Christian group. But there are many, many people whose Christianity is simply fruitless. It's not going to pass the test. God is the one, by the way, and we see that here in the parable, God is the one who takes away branches that are not bearing any fruit. And he's also the one for those who bear fruit that you can't understand why you're having all the problems that you're having, the trials and difficulties that you're having. And let me be clear about this. Don't think, I mean, you still can pray either way, but don't think that so many of the problems that come your way are not just part of human nature on the planet. In other words, not every problem that comes to you is unique because you're a Christian. We're looking at those obstacles, challenges, whatever it may be, as causing us to be cut back. That's unique to the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example very quickly. I told you how from time to time I get literally attacked, mostly by atheists on social media. It doesn't last very long because I always block them. I don't have time or the interest. I do have the time and the interest Well, maybe not the time, but I got the interest to talk to people who are reasonable, who are actually looking for truth. And I can accept at the end of a discussion with anybody that they still hold to there is no God. And I hold to the fact that there is, and Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. But most people that I deal with, if I'm attacked, unprovoked. It's not going to be a reasonable discussion, so it doesn't last very long. In any case, this happened just a few days ago. I think it was the beginning of the week. All the four-letter words were in there. So I just wrote back to him quickly. I said, well, that's very bravely spoken. And you're behind a computer somewhere, and you're not facing off somebody man-to-man. I assume it's a man. Because most of them use avatars and not the real picture. Me, I'm easy to find. There's my picture. There's my bio, my handle. Do you find me on the Internet? I'm not difficult to find. But then he went on to use some more four-letter words about our God. Then I said to him, intelligently spoken. And then after that, I said, I don't have time for this anymore, so I just dialed them out. Well, for us, I want to just be able to say that there are people who have objections to Christianity or to Christ. Let's say to Christ. Based on the fact of what they see in the lives of Christians, that doesn't measure up to what they have already read. They haven't studied it the way I have and some of you have. But they have cherry-picking. You know, they just take verses and see all these things. There's answers for all of them, but most of them don't want to hear it or they're not interested in hearing it. But we cannot negate the fact that some of them have reasonable objections. They come 
and they look at the professing Christian and they figure out what sometimes I say we, I'm going to put the burden more on pastors, not even preachers, that itinerate and travel all over the place, but pastors who have the church in front of them, but they're supposed to be taking care of them, that the pastor themselves is not challenging the people. So if an atheist, and I'm just using atheism, it could be a lot of different people, they, you know, have some precursory idea or cursory idea of what a Christian should be, and they see these blatant discrepancies, then they have a reasonable argument. Christianity is fruitless in the case of many professing Christians. And so what God said he would do here, let's read it one more time. Every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, right, I'm paraphrasing it, he takes it away. And every branch that's bearing fruit, he prunes it. I, you know, being a New Yorker, I didn't have any opportunity to grow a garden where we lived in apartments, tenements, all of my life till I came up here. And one day when my wife said to me, oh, the hedges, they need to be trimmed. And I decided this one guy over here, he was unruly. I just decided to really whack him. I whacked him. I mean, he was bald. <laughs> By the time I got finished with those trimmings, whack. What did he do? In vengeance, he grew twice as big. There's the principle. Uh, we don't understand why are we being cut? Why are we being challenged? Why are we being pressed, as the Apostle Paul said, out of measure, beyond strength? We read that not long ago. Pressed beyond measure and out of strength. When you say to yourself, I can't take any more, which may be true. But God is faithful. He said, he would not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. And shall with the temptation make the way to escape. Or our ability to bear it. But it's all so that we bear even more fruit and become more Christ-like. Remember, that's the point of salvation. Heaven is the great byproduct. But we have a tendency to think in terms of making the kingdom, which is certainly a biblical principle... But the idea of salvation is not making heaven as much as it is being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a tall order. I'm not there yet. Are you? I'm not. And when I pray to God and you pray to God and you say, God, you know, draw me close to you and all this. God says, okay, fine. And then you start finding all these trials coming, testing of your faith. All right. So we get the concept. And uh, again, A reprobate mind deals with not just people who don't profess God, but people who do. As I read to you in Titus 1.16. Listen to the words of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. That's an illustration. Same as you do at home. Now, you've pruned this and you've fertilized it, manured it, whatever. And it just doesn't bear any fruit. Why? Why keep it? It's not why you planted it. Something wrong. Take it away. That's exactly what God is saying in his word. Now, I took you through last week. If you want to turn there, Galatians chapter 5, it would be good for us to review it. If I gave you the illustration of the man who was using a yardstick and make a yardstick... And at the end of the day, they were coming up so many inches short. We don't measure ourselves to each other. We measure ourselves by this here. This is a mirror. The same way you primp in the morning, I assume you do, make sure everything is just right, good enough, and you go. How we measure ourselves is right here. That's how we measure ourselves. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we find out what the fruit is. What is a fruitful life? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
My favorite word, English translation, long-suffering for patience. Patience doesn't speak to me as much as long-suffering. Marriage is like that. Why I tell young people, I say young people, anybody I've ever counseled before we did a wedding service, I would say to them, why do we take vows for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer? Now we have all this in it, and never has anybody got the answer right. They don't know. You see, because Christianity has a valid, maybe it is a tradition, we don't see it spelled out precisely in the Bible, but Christianity has had something in place that is a good thing, and that is that we... Take a vow, and why is that? Because things change. The first year together, second year together, 20th year together, 40th year together, you're suffering a long time. Somebody asked me one time, I asked them rather, I said, well, you said you want a good marriage, or what is a good marriage? And they pointed to me. <laughs> so I said, really? I said, do you know what the secret is? It's two words, write it down. Hard, no, long suffering is one word. Hard work for both. And don't in your marriage say, I did all the hard, heavy lifting. Believe me, that's a deception. Because what you're saying is that this is the same as the world says. It's not me, it's him. <laughs> and the husband's saying, it's not me, it's her. What is God saying? It's the two of you. Just like yeah, when you have kids. What's me with him? It's the both of you. And that's how it is here in the church. The perfect ones, well, they're the fruitless ones usually. They're the ones who have made an intellectual acceptance of biblical study and then believe that that's fruit. Now, using the intellect is certainly part of what we do as Christians, but it's not the essence of truly bearing fruit. Fruit is coming from our spirit. Without me, you could do nothing. I'm the vine, so we're taking from Christ his nature coming through us. And in time, there should be a progression of evidence that everybody can see. We were taught, we have been taught by Jesus, how would we know a false prophet? He says, ye shall know them by their fruits. And it's amazing to me how many, not just Christian people, but Christian pastors who are supposed to be teachers of the word, cannot discern, or seemingly cannot discern, a false prophet from a true one, a false teacher from a true teacher. And we go on. And Jesus said, well, you'll know them by the fruits, the way they behave, the way they talk, the way they live. You would know. And there again, you have to know the Bible. But what I want to say is that the measuring stick that we use is the Bible, of course. But specifically, it's what we have just read and read last week, the fruit of the Spirit. So for a moment, and we understand that God is the ultimate judge. But he does tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that we should examine ourselves to see whether or not we're actually in the faith. Well, what we use as a standard is, well, I go to church. I go to church meetings. I give in the offerings, I pray, I sing during the song service, and we go down this list, and none of them are in the Bible as far as the ultimate test of whether you are a documus or you're the real thing. And so we know, Jesus said we would know false teachers, false prophets by their fruit. He said so. Somebody interjects somewhere along the line, can't judge, don't judge, and quotes Matthew 6, verse 1. See, this is what the atheist and the agnostic and the just generally antagonistic critic of Christianity, of the Bible, they look at these verses and they say, it's not judge. Explain that to me. That takes a little time because we've got to compare verse with verse. But it really means not to be judgmental. Because, let me say this to you again, I've brought it to you over the years. If you are struggling with your own nature, your sin nature, when you talk to somebody else, you don't have this arrogant attitude. And you know why? 
because you know how difficult it is to overcome your own nature. So when you're talking to someone else, it naturally follows that you talk in a much more modified and humble tone because you realize this isn't easy to do. I always give examples from several areas that I'm familiar with, and one is strength training and all of that. And I'll use a figure. A bench press of 405 pounds is pretty good for anybody at any age because anybody who's been underneath that kind of a weight knows how heavy it is. If you've seen pictures of me on my Facebook page, one guy came up behind me and he said, man, the bar is bending, which I never really considered that the bar could snap. Probably maybe wasn't made for that kind of stress. And he said, it looks like one of those cartoons. And so when I'm walking around the gym, I'm not putting my nose up at everybody because I already know how difficult this actually is. So what you do is you lend a hand and say, you need a spot or whatever they may need because you already know how difficult this is. You see, this is one of the tests that you could use when you're approached by somebody who's going to go up one side of you and down the other. That's a good indication. They haven't a clue what it's like to wrestle against their own nature before we even throw in Satan and the tests of God. They don't have a clue. But a humble tone is a good indication when it's true humility and not cowardice a good indication that they understand. You don't just snap your fingers and say, well, just get rid of the sin. Those of us, I say us, I meant all of us, who struggle against sin, which is all of us, if you're actually walking with Christ, know how difficult that is. And then again, let me say this again. And so we find the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. This is a good example. The woman who was caught in the act of adultery is thrown at Jesus' feet there in the temple, And they go through the whole story. Hey, you know, we caught her in the middle of the act. What do you say? They're only trying to accuse Jesus. And Jesus, as I made mention before of this, just recently, he's scratching out something on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. We do know what he said when he stood up. He that is without sin, you cast the first stone. And we could credit these Jewish elders with at least as much wisdom to know they had to drop the rocks because to throw a rock was saying, I don't have any sin before God. The person who's not bearing fruit is usually the empty barrel making a lot of noise. And they really don't have the concept of what it's like, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, to be crucified with Christ and to endure all things for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the body of Christ. Listen to this. It's a very wise quote from Blaise Pascal, who was mathematician as well as a theologian in Roman Catholic Church, but he was a theologian. And this statement is very much engorged with a lot of possibilities. I'm going to amend it a little bit and read it a little differently. But he said this, Men never commit evil so fully and joyfully as when they do it for religious convictions. I'll read it again. Men never commit evil so fully and joyfully as when they do it for religious convictions. Now, the greatest persecutor of Christians has been the church itself. And read the history if you haven't. The greatest persecutor of the prophets of God in the Old Testament was the Jewish leaders primarily, the people too. They rejected them. They killed them. And the same with the Apostle Paul. Or Jesus said, the time will come when men will kill you and they'll believe they're doing God a service. Men never commit evil so fully and so joyfully as they do it based on religious conviction. Now I'm going to amend that to say that we could add in the word politics. My group is right. Your group is wrong, and then the evil comes. We see it now all around the world. It's been around from ancient times, but we see a lot of it now. 
How about philosophy, ideology? And I'll want to confine it to us to say, then we get in here, and it's not essential doctrines, deity of Christ, virgin birth, and so on. But men seem to actually enjoy provoking other Christians on non-essential things where the understanding is never so clear as someone would give you the uh, idea that it is. And I guess the preachers sometimes don't have enough humility to say, well, this is a, you know, it's a debatable subject. There are some very good brethren who believe this. and some very good brethren over here who believe this. And I'm not talking about essentials. I'm talking about non-essential for relationship with Christ and so on. But the person who's actually struggled and thought through theology knows that, I mean, I'm still scratching my head 40, what, almost 45 years later. Then I think I just got it figured out, and then all of a sudden it has more possibilities, not on essentials, but on non-essential doctrines. They're all important, but there are some that would be a cause for good discussion. Now, the empty barrel makes the most noise. The fruitless Christian is the one who is usually most outspoken, most vociferous, most truculent, verbally truculent. And the person who's learning the measure of crucifixion in their own life is the one who's most merciful, long-suffering. I never even finished the fruit of the Spirit, did I? I got stuck on long-suffering. So let me finish with gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. This is what's happening in the life of a true Christian from John 15 as God is pruning. And as you are sitting back and saying, okay, God, what is the lesson I'm supposed to learn? See, we're very quick to point out Remember, as a pastor, it's my job to point out. But I have occupied my entire life just trying to change myself relative to working with Christ. I've worked on my own little world, so I would be able to speak to you with a clear conscience. And this is how we measure that we are truly Christians and we're truly growing in Christ. Because frankly, some of the criticisms that Christianity has had over many centuries is not always wrong. Not always wrong. Some of it is blatantly wrong, but it's not always wrong. Bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we just read in John chapter 15. And so we many times observe, and I hope that you don't find yourself in this position, because you have a good intellect and a good memory, walking around quoting verses, pointing fingers all the time, when the truth of it is, is that your life isn't bearing much fruit biblically. Is there any gentleness in there? Is there any goodness in there? Are you suffering long with the brethren? These things would not be put in the Bible if it was so easy for us to get along. If it were easy for us to get along, we wouldn't have to be told to be tenderhearted, forgiving, having mercy on each other the way God had mercy on you, Christ had mercy on you, and so on. These things would not be necessary for us to have to have written to us if it wasn't for the fact that we're tempted to do it. Let me just quickly add this in. It's always been a little pet peeve of mine. So you belong to the Baptist Church, and you belong to the Pentecostal Church. There's so many names. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm reading just recently some antagonists to Christianity. I want to know where they're coming from so I can argue it, properly argue it. And sometimes they're making a statement that you have to just say, yeah, that's truth. That one's true. That's the truth. And when we really look at the church and those that profess that they know God, we find that there's a kind of a zeal. Here I'm talking about denominations. I'm Baptist, and there's 40 different, 40, 50, 500 variations of what is a Baptist. And this guy wrote in his book that he didn't understand all the terminology, and what I was saying as I'm reading the book is I don't understand it either. I made the mistake of being at lunch with a pastor some years ago and calling him a fundamentalist. I am not a fundamentalist. He got really mad. I am not a fundamentalist. I am evangelical, okay? (laughs) 
To this day, I still don't know the difference. You say, how stupid can you be? You have all these degrees. I'm not stupid. I just, it depends on how you define the word. And I find it to be ill-defined, and I find it to be dependent on the person defining it, so I just skip it when I get back to Christ. That works for me. It's easy for me. Somebody asked me the other day, well, what's the denomination on you? Well, I said, well, we're, should I say independent? Uh, well, are we this? Well, you got to have a name. I don't have a name. We're Christians. Amen. But they want a name. Christ. Yeah, I know Christ, but what are you? Okay. So <laughs> we're going nowhere with this. And to me, I have a tendency to see things more simply than other people do. The Bible's the Bible. We don't question that. And there's a lot of good studies we have done here on the integrity of the Bible, of its transmission, and so on. But the point that I'm trying to drive home is that we, like Blaise Pascal said, we sometimes execute vengeance on the brethren of the church, brothers and sisters, in different places mostly, but sometimes inside this local fellowship, simply because we're arrogant and proud. We treat each other in mean ways when Christ would never do that and explicitly tells us throughout the epistles of Paul and Peter and everybody else how we should behave towards each other. And again, we wouldn't need to be told that if it just came easy. If for me to be a pastor came easy, I don't know, I wouldn't even have to pray as much as I do. Quitting is much easier, by the way, than succeeding. And going down the wrong path is a whole lot easier than going down the right path, no doubt. In our yard some years ago, we had what I would call a presumptuous pear tree. Presumptuous in that it identified itself as a pear tree because for some time it did have pears on it. And we had an apple tree the same way, a couple of them. Then in the course of time, there came a necessity to take them down. And why was that? Because two of the apple trees no longer bore any apples. And some of the fruit that we did come off was rotting on the vine or on the branch. And we took them down. Same with the pear tree. But what if that pear tree was animate? It could speak. When the apple trees are getting cut down, the pear tree is saying to the apple trees, the guy that planted you, and I don't know who planted them. I didn't. We didn't. The guy that planted you planted me. They're better. But now they're all cut down because none of them bore any fruit any longer. And so in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parable, another parable. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. He put the tree down. There was time given to it. It was taken care of, but no figs. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about and manure it, fertilize it, dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. So here again, you see, Jesus is driving across a very important point. We don't become Christians for nothing. We don't come, it's not like an amusement park or anything else where we get the atonement and the blood so we get the permanent hall pass so that when we do die, we go straight to heaven. Well, how many people? Some people, many people, most people, I don't know. But a lot of people just wanted a hall pass. They even fixed their theology to say, now you can do whatever you want because it's all by grace. But let me tell you something about grace. If I were to go through that door, it goes somewhere. Faith is the door that opens, I should say, faith opens the door to God's grace. And the other night, to illustrate, I'm out walking the dog and we had a full moon. And it just came out, you know, the clouds. It was actually beautiful. This big sphere just peeking out and just, boom, lighting up. And I'm just standing there looking at the stars. 
And I'm reminded that the moon has no luminescence in itself. It cannot possibly shine. It's just a very large asteroid, big rock. But it's the sun that shines on the moon and reflects it down. And then we actually walk in the moonlight. Moon light. Ye are the light of the world. Well, I thought you said you were the light of the world. Another area that critics bring up. He said he's the light of the world. Then he says you're the light of the world. Well, it's both. Because Jesus shines on us. This is grace, by the way. And people, we, can see the influence of that grace in our lives. When that's not there, let's say we somehow could see the moon and it never shines. Well, then we know a couple of things. It doesn't have any light. And certainly the sun does not shine on it because there's no luminescence. It's not doing what God created it to do. Whatever other purposes it serves, such as controlling the tides and whatever, maybe we need to keep it there. But certainly we have to lose the word moonlight or the shadows that light create and everything that's associated with light. We have to take it away from that asteroid or whatever it is, whatever astronomers say it is, because it's not doing what it was meant to do. It was meant to reflect the light of the sun. And when you truly have grace to be saved, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the door. And we receive grace and it is the gift of God. And it's not for us to boast about what we've done. We are to boast about what God has done. We are reflecting that grace. Grace is a dynamic quality, not static. And it is the reflection of God's work in our soul, and it comes out. So you see it. And your friends see it. They don't understand everything. Well, we don't understand everything either. But there's a difference. Why you said, no, I used to be so much fun. I used to go here. You used to do that. And how about this? And how about that? And you explain to them, no, I don't do that anymore. But why is that? It's because the Son, Son of God, has given you grace, which we accept by faith. And the Son of God has given you grace, and it's reflecting in your life. So that when they see us, like if the moon, again, if it was animated, if it could speak, and I would say, oh, moon, shine tonight. And the moon says, I don't shine. The sun shines. I just reflect it. That's why we give the glory to Christ. Because you know, and I know, this is not me. Me and the natural, we're totally different than Jesus. And that's fruit. We reflect Jesus' nature, little and by little. So I was going past the church one day, years ago. And like many churches, it had a marquee outside where, you know, they put service times and whatever else is going on. And I never forget how engaging this statement was. And it said this, as I was driving down the street, going past the church, it had this on the marquee. It said, if there was a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Well, the key word is evidence. Remember in courts of law, in our jurisprudence, our system of jurisprudence, we don't look for hearsay. We don't look for someone who claims they're a witness. We look for someone who actually is a witness or was a witness. They got to be validated, verified. And that's the question. Is there enough evidence in your life that if there was a court of law convicting Christians based on what they've read in the book, what the book says, is there enough evidence that you would be convicted of being a Christian? I'll never forget reading that. That's going back a long, long time ago. Would there be enough evidence to say, that's definitely a Christian? And judging by the fruit of the Spirit, this person has got love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. And then there's holiness and then there's righteousness and all of these things. That's a good question and one that we want to be able to answer in the affirmative. When it comes to having a fruitful life and not being a part of Christianity, which is Christian in name only, 
then we have to understand that faith and works actually do go together. Now here again, the subject of theological debate has been going on for a long time. But I think I could put you at rest by reading this verse to you and comparing it. In James we read, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you that my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe. And they're not going to heaven. And they're not certainly in Christ's nature. They believe there's one God. Demons aren't atheists. It may appear that way, but they're not. The devils also believe and tremble. They know their faith. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? All the singing and praying and reading and reciting and memorizing of Bible verses doesn't mean anything. It's vain. If there's no reflection where your life is shining. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. Now this is James writing. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now, again, critics of the Bible will point and go over to Romans, where it says explicitly, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. And it seems to be a contradiction. When it's not a contradiction, it is merely at that moment contrary. Because the Apostle Paul is trying to illustrate what I'm saying here. Faith opens the door. He's the same one that wrote the book of Titus. They say they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Same author. I mean, if you discount the Holy Spirit. Paul writing both epistles, and faith here, as we see it in Romans, faith and faith alone, sola fide, right? One of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola fide is faith alone. That opens the door, brings grace. What James is accenting is the other side of it. The Apostle Paul is accenting the fact that it's faith. It's all done by faith. And James is saying, yeah, and that faith brings in grace that actually changes you, and your life becomes fruitful not fruitless. We're not going to get into all that dispute there. But they are not contradictory. They are complementary. I have two elephants. were my dad's. They're bookends. Wooden. And they face different directions. So if I say to you, elephant faces west. Then on another occasion, I say, elephant faces left. You're always contradicting yourself. Is it left or is it right? It was both. It depends on which one I'm accenting, see? Here James is accenting the grace of God. That changes a man. And Paul is accenting the faith that brings us into that grace. But they don't contradict the compliment. That brings us to this. That faith, if it has no fruit, that's works. Faith has no fruit. Jesus said, it's taken down. It's taken away. In Luke chapter 6 verse 46, Jesus says something here. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why do you call him Lord? What does the word Lord mean? Well, it means a lot of things. Lordship of our lives. Over the years, I've used an illustration right here. Whenever I have what would I call an intransigent individual. Let me say it another way. Let's picture that this local fellowship here is a bus. And every so often, someone gets on the bus and says, I'm driving. Now, I'm the one that's got the badge that says certified bus driver. I got the hat, the uniform, the tie, the whole thing. And the bus company hired me. Who are you? So this person comes on. This happened. I'm not giving you a phony illustration, like a metaphor. I'm giving you real stories. And this person just basically says, hey, slide over. 
And my response is always the same. I'm driving the bus. You say, well, I don't like where you're going. Get off at the next stop. Or for that matter, get off now while we're still moving, if you please. (laughs) That's up to you. But make no mistake about this. I'm driving this bus. Not that bus. Not that bus. Not that one. I'm driving this one. The under-shepherd of the great shepherd. And it brings us to the point of why do we even call him Lord if he's not really the boss? In other words, let me say to you in plain vanilla. When it comes to this local fellowship, I'm the boss. We never use that word in Christianity in church. I don't know why, but we just don't. I'm the pastor, which is the biblical term, right? But to some people, that means I can't think of any other way to say it. He's the chump. Let's play him. Then you have the whole family that's got their hands on the wheel. Somebody's not going fast of all, hit the brake, going too fast. Now where's the bus going? It's all over the road. Are you the pastor? Yeah. And then their mind's saying, oh, you're the chump. Okay, so we're going to play you. The pastor is the boss. He's not the savior. And the boss should always be pointing you, this small little bee, be pointing you to the boss. The boss told me to take care of you, take care of this fellowship, and I'm driving the bus. But Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? For those of you who took public transit, I did for many, many years. You know, if the bus driver says, get to the back of the bus, what options did you have? Today, it would be different. Today, they'd be riding and burning the bus and throwing the bus off a cliff (laughs) and shooting the bus driver just for practice. But back in those days, when I grew up, bus drivers said, get in the back of the bus. You got in the back of the bus. And Jesus asked a type of rhetorical question. He says, why do you call me Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? And it's a good question. Because we don't want our relationship with Christ to be a mere profession. We don't want our relationship with Christ to be fruitless. We want it to bear fruit, but not the fruit of some denomination. The fruit that we find here in the book. So I'll finish with this old expression, but it has relevance now. No cross, no crown. Again, what people say, preachers say, pastors say, denominations say, the board of elders say, the board of deacons say, whoever says it, I'm saved. And it's a permanent hall pass in the mind of the person to disregard everything else the Bible says and just say, hey, I'm going to heaven. And Jesus is saying to us in this message here, or the apostles, if you will, The word of God is saying to us, not so quick. All the trees heading that way are fruitful in this life. And they bear fruit in this life. No cross, no crown. The only way that you can bear fruit is to live the crucified life. So we talk about cross of Christ. That belongs to Jesus. The penalty was paid. We were purchased. Our sins were taken by Christ and on and on. Now he says, here's a cross for you so you will bear fruit. And it's this place, at this junction here, that we have a bit of hesitation. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No cross, no crown. No cross, no fruit. No fruit, the Father takes it away. Let me just finish by saying something I say frequently, I have said frequently. If you find yourself not liking what you hear, would you always please keep in mind that I didn't write this book? You can't find one single page in all the 31,102 verses of the Bible that says, Pastor Ray wrote that one. (laughs) Not even one. What it does say is, 
the Lord said, and God said, and the Spirit speaks, and Jesus said, I've never said it. I just read it and accepted it for myself. And then God called me into the ministry to preach it and give it to you. If we're going to bear fruit, we're going to have to be purged or pruned. We're going to have to allow those trials to push us closer in abiding in Christ. That's how the program goes. Don't let your Christianity be one of a permanent hall pass to do whatever you want to do. But ask yourself today, you know, just why do I call him Lord? And you want more information and explanation and so forth of this? You read it. There it is. And then we know what he said. Father, we have come to a place in history, I believe, where we are going through, which I've looked at over the last seven months of a dress rehearsal for the end of this age. Now, how many more years, centuries even? I don't know. But it seems apparent enough that we should be able to discern good and evil first in our own lives, and then we become proficient in looking at other people and helping them along. Father, we pray today in Jesus' name that we can accept the application of the cross to our own life so that we may be able to confidently say, Jesus is mine. Help us, Lord, not to simply fill our heads with mess sermons, Bible studies, Greek and Hebrew words, and all of that, but rather to take what we are learning and studying and submit it to you. And as we come in faith, it opens the door to grace and we begin to reflect your life. Help us, God, not to perform evil so fully and joyfully because of our politics, because of our ideology, philosophy, feelings. But rather, God, help us to live the life that you have ordained for us to live, for Christ to live in us, shining on us, and we reflect that light. And we don't do it perfectly, either does the moon. Nevertheless, we reflect it. God, I pray today that in the times in which we live, which are pretty dark, pretty evil, we would also be able to see the good that you do because you're God and you never change. You were very angry with the people of Israel when they murmured all the way through the wilderness. And finally, you said, that's it. Every single one of you is going to die here and you'll never get to the promised land. And that was just for complaining and murmuring. They didn't like your ways. They preferred the ways of the Egyptians, the world. Father, help us to be able to follow your ways because it's not pleasing to us. Well, what? Just give us more and more grace as we come to you by faith. How many of you can say, in all honesty, life is throwing a lot of stuff at you lately? You feeling the pressure? Like you got your head in the vice? We all are. But let's use it to our advantage so that it produces more of Christ in us. That's how muscles grow. They grow through stress. Too much stress, no good. Too little stress, no good. That'd be just right. God makes everything perfect in his time. The days in which we live right now, though displeasing to us, certainly displeasing to me, I recognize them when I look in the Bible. So let's pray again. I get up this morning and said, this is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, Lord, I'll end with that. This day was made by you. And what's falling out? Well, at least it has your approval. You are fulfilling a plan with humanity in the human race. You will have your way. Help us to be found in accord with your way, bearing fruit. There's much more to say on this subject, Lord, but I leave it to my brothers and sisters here to go home and ferret it out, look a little deeper. But the point is made, Christianity can be fruitless, but was not designed to be fruitless. Help us not to be fruitless. Bless each one of my friends that are here today as we go through all of these pressures and stress and different things. And also, Father God, that you would provide the faith 
have more grace. I pray all these things today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.